Hello, everyone. This is Mary Beth Gassman, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the Varying Viewpoints podcast, which is sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice, which I have the privilege of uh, leading. And today, I'm really, really excited because we have a special guest with us, and that is Philo Hutchison, who is a retired professor, and he likes to also call himself Emperor of the Universe. Um, I do want to share that he has uh, over 50 years of experience in higher education. And most of you, if you're familiar with Philo, you probably know of his uh, superb historical work, which is one of the things that I admire the most about him. And uh, in case you haven't checked it out, he has a brand new book out. And I really want to recommend this book. I think it is essential for anyone interested in history, but also in education and higher education and justice. And it's called A People's History of American Higher Education, published by uh, Rutledge Press. And so welcome, Philo. Thank you, Mary Beth. It's good to hear your voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. How are you doing today? Uh, well, uh, given the times, uh, I'm doing okay. I feel isolated and alienated, but geez. I'm doing fine. You know, I, I live in a very rural area in Maine now, uh, and we're just staying hunkered down. It's going to be, you know, a bizarre moment to look back at on in 10, 20 years for historians of higher education. It sure is. And actually, there is um, a lot that we'll probably be looking back on in terms of how colleges and universities are handling this and also the, the role of leadership, I would assume, right? Yep. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I you know, I actually wonder uh, how many presidents said before spring break, don't go. Right, right. Expand, expand upon that for a second. Well, it seems to me that the one thing we need in, in this time of crisis is clear leadership. And uh, having spent all those decades, gosh, I kind of hate to say it, but it's true in higher education. I know that uh, students don't necessarily do what the adults want them to do. Uh, and spring break's an excellent example. And I don't know that it would have changed anything, but I think that colleges and universities would have stood well to say before spring break, we know you like to celebrate spring break. It's you know, part of the instituted spring break decades ago, mm. but this is not the time or the place. Yeah, yeah, right. I and it's, it's really been interesting to see the, the different ways that people are leading. And also I think the the humanity that some are leading with and maybe the lack of humanity that some are leading with. And uh, like um, I've been following Joe Castro, who's the president of Cal State Fresno or Fresno State. And it's been really interesting because he is literally answering everybody's questions via Twitter and he's doing it with humor and just in this really humane way. And then on the other hand, you have the president of Liberty University trying to, bring students back to campus, right? So we have so many things going on. Right, right. As somebody in the grandparents stage, um, I would prefer to say if I were a professor, I just don't really want to have class. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Online does not present me with the same opportunities as in person, but uh, in person presents me with opportunities I don't care to have right now. Right, right, which most of us don't, so. Yeah. Um, 
So I wanted to kind of start out by having you tell uh, our audience a little bit more about yourself and your research interests. I mentioned that you're a historian, but um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, those 50 years uh, that you put in. Well, as best as I can remember. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I really started, I, I, I'm also going to talk a little bit about how I started with history of higher education because they do combine. And way back in the 1870s, oh wait, 1970s, um, I was in college administration and getting an eye to getting a PhD and becoming college president. And I talked to various people on my campus, a, a small college in Wisconsin. I mentioned it a couple of times in my book, Carroll College. Um, and you know, by and large, they said, get a PhD, get one from a well-recognized institution and then just you know, pursue those interests. And it, as early as the winter semester of my first year of college, I was asked to be an observer of the faculty senate for the first time ever student observers uh, at this small college. And I was fascinated by what was going on. Colleagues who would talk to each other, you know, hello, have coffee together in the, the uh, student center grill and so on, would just get into it on the faculty floor. Uh, and also I was on committees, uh, student faculty committees, watching how curriculum got negotiated and everything. So I started, my interest started with uh, faculty and faculty behavior. And interestingly enough, for those listeners who are familiar with the Association for Study of Higher Education, at about the time that I was defending my dissertation, I put in a proposal to Ash, and I was looking at the AAUP and collective bargaining. That was my dissertation. It was my first book. Um, and the uh, program coordinator at the time for Ash, uh, who uh, was a, a good friend, uh, I knew him. I was in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was at the University of Minnesota called me and said, unfortunately, we're not able to accept your proposal. People did not like it. And one person even said, looking at faculty is a lot like navel gazing. Mm. Now, of course, there's a whole section on faculty <laughs> and yeah. research and so on. But, you know, it's kind of an indication of, of what the field looked like back then. It was a lot of organization and governance work almost exclusively. Um, and looking at faculty, I think, almost dictates that you look to the past. Mm -hmm. I, I never will forget being at that same place in Minnesota, Hamlin University, and a professor standing up, we were trying to evaluate our writing across the curriculum requirements. And he, this was 1991. And he said, when I started teaching here as a graduate student in 1948, and the place just went quiet, right? The whole faculty meeting went quiet. And he said, and this is the best that I've ever seen students write here. So I was like, well, there's my evaluation. I'm done. You know, I, I, you know, I, We've got you know, basically 40 years of experience uh, here speaking. So that got me thinking historically. What really kicked me into gear on history of higher education was my second quarter. We were on the quarter system at University of Chicago. My advisor uh, always took the fall off and he came back in the winter to teach history of higher education. And to this day, Mary Beth, I remember he opened with a three hour lecture pretty much without notes. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it took us basically from the Middle Ages in Western Northern Europe to the foundation of, of Harvard College. 
Um, and I was stunned. I just, I, I, I think I've told students every single time I taught history of higher ed um, that I was just taken aback. This is marvelous. This is where this is all this coming from. And when I have um, students read, for example, the, the Yale report of 1828, which is 19, early 19th century argument and language, those people interested in the liberal arts go, this is it. This is my defense of the liberal arts. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so much of what we have done over the centuries has stuck with us. And I mean that in both fortunate and unfortunate ways, right? That, that our history of, of uh, working with people of different, I call them communities a lot of times in the books, I'm always grappling with how I name. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just, uh, whom have we excluded and why? And why does the exclusion continue? So the other part of it for me is more based personally because mm -hmm. way back when, when I was in seventh grade, that was in the 1830s, <laughs> uh, the, uh, 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 my mom took me in to DC. We lived outside DC at the time to help stuff envelopes for the March on Washington. I, I didn't know what was going on. You know, we would drive in and you know, there are people getting ready for the march. And I remember the American Nazi party was there with these signs. I said to my mother, how can they do this? And she said, well, it's freedom of speech in the United States and it's unfortunate. We don't agree with them, but they're there. You know, and then you take me to, I think it was a Southern Christian leadership conference. Yeah. I'd be there, this little kid, you know, stuffing envelopes and all these middle-aged women, almost all of them African-American, be like, oh, look at the little kid, he's so cute. And I'd be like, okay, I'll fold this letter, put it in the envelope. But I was really raised to think, you know, what, what do we do when we have people who are not provided uh, with the opportunities that make this a democracy? So there's been a side to me that's always said in terms of research interests, who's in, who's out? You know, wh whether it's faculty and the administration is shuffling them aside uh, in the name of getting things done uh, or um, institutions and how they portray themselves publicly and what that might mean to some community that just has not had much opportunity for higher education. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm a white male straight guy who's been a, the result of privileged education, but it just has never left me. It's odd I live now. I'm in rural Maine. Uh, trust me, Maine is white. It is, it is damn poor. And, and uh, uh, I'm very conscious of that. I, you know, I, most of my friends are people who uh, work pretty much hand to mouth. And I just, you know, I don't say, oh, welcome. You know, I'm going to take care of you or anything like that. We, we're friends. Mm -hmm. we, we mean something to each other on friendship levels and yeah they come over and drink bud light yeah which in my mind is really a beer but that's what they drink uh and and uh you know we just talk about everyday stuff Ooh. so that's it's always been at me and, uh, and i got to state it and really highlighted the african-american situation because that's in atlanta getting a view of african-american life different from the midwest uh even chicago didn't see the black middle class so much in Chicago unless you were really in the neighborhood. Uh, whereas in Atlanta, the black middle class is front and present. Right, right, right. yeah. So, uh, it's got a personal level to it and it's just got this professional 
curiosity about how do we organize higher education, uh, even the faculty members, how do they get opportunity to voice concerns about curriculum? Mm, yeah. Students we select. And then it expanded and took the broader sense of what I think my book represents, who's here and why, and who's not here. Absolutely, thank you, thank you. So you kind of, you kind of talked about this a little bit, but I just want to kind of go a little deeper and um, because, you know, within education and also within the field of higher education, there aren't really that many people interested in history mm -hmm. in terms of scholars who do historical work. And so I and you, you listened to this lecture and it really wowed you and, and motivated you. But are there other other kind of impetuses for studying the history of higher education uh, rather than just doing maybe like quantitative or traditional qualitative work? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I think generally uh, those of us who pursue the doctorate, I mean, you, you get a sense for what you do and do not want to do in terms of research method and methodology and what you can understand. And at the time that I was coming through my higher ed doctorate, there were hardly any historians of higher education. I mean, literally my first ASH meeting in 1988, there were three historians of higher education, one of whom at St. Louis University, Charlie, looked at um, medieval Islamic universities, right? Which is not gonna have much weight in, in the study of contemporary higher education in the United States. A colleague who was almost exclusively focused on Catholic higher education. Um, and then here I was kind of bouncing around looking at collective bargaining and, and faculty members. And I always felt in listening to presentations um, that we were missing something. And when I would talk to colleagues in administration, because I was still in college administration at the time, I realized that they didn't really see that problems that we were grappling with at the moment, what do you do when a parent comes to you at orientation and says, my daughter's got an African-American roommate, probably not saying African-American in really fallen terms, right? Um, and I don't want this, right? Uh, or uh, I see you have a, a group for LGBTQ+. Why is that? That's offensive to me. Mm -hmm. um, this is, you know, centuries. Right, right. Uh, and so recognizing it and addressing it and thinking about it, I don't know how many times in class a student would just say, oh, oh, we're grappling with this now. We're thinking, we're arguing about, we, we've, we, this is 150 years old and we still haven't. I, yep, we still haven't. So it doesn't mean it's an easy problem. But until you know the problem, you're not going to really get at it. Uh, you can talk about it, but I don't think you're really going to do much with it. Um, and um, I, you know, I don't see it as a decision-making device. Uh, I, I do think it is, of it as, as an essential backdrop, uh, and particularly in higher education, right? I mean, this is a, a field where you know, institutions pride themselves on their age. They do everything to let you know, you know they've been around for 100 years, 200 years, almost 300 years. Uh, and so with that age, I think comes, uh, and not necessarily accepted, responsibility of understanding what we've done. And, you know, by and large for me, it keeps coming back to 
Whom are we including? Whom are we excluding? Why are we doing it? Mm -hmm. And so, so many of the contemporary investigations I enjoy, you know, like one of my favorites a long time ago was that women who were assertive were actually aggressive. And so that devalued them, right? Right. Could not be aggressive. That was wrong. It's socially wrong. And I think we still have a sense of that. It's not as great as it used to be, but it, it's still there. People are taken aback by uh, hard driving women. Mm -hmm. I could name a, somebody speaker of the house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think part of the discomfort with her is that she is a woman and she's just standing there going, no, we're not going to do it this way. Um, right. Yeah. So I think that's a, a real key. It's also the way we're locked in institutionally to our histories that we don't think about. You know, academic departments, I don't care how many times we reshuffle the deck. Uh, academic departments are well over 100 years old now. And it used to be an axiom in organization and governance courses, you'd say it's the building block. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's probably the strategic planning department, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's fundamentally and, and, the, and the way the people in natural and physical sciences argue uh, is not the same as in the humanities. Um, here, here's a contemporary example that, that has great historical uh, basis. When you're in a curriculum committee meeting, uh, whether you're a staff, staff member or a faculty member, and somebody's talking about requirements, how many times does it come up that the chemistry professor says, you know, your people don't do as much work because we have three hours of and three hours of lab plus homework. And then, you know, the English professor goes nuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's really a century plus old. So, you know, when we talk about being nimble and quick and jumping over the candlestick or whatever Jack did, you know, my reaction is I understand the need to react and react with, you know, thought. But on the under, other hand, we have traditions and constructions that are, gosh, go all the way back to the Middle Ages in terms of organization in, in the Northern European University, and then ways of thinking that go all the way back to, you know, Timbuktu, and uh, 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 you know, I could point at Buddhist or Confucius and Buddhism, Confucianism, and say, you know, there are ways of argument that are millennia old now. Mm -hmm. What can we do with them? Do we accept them? Do we reject them? But know that they're there and that they're impacting what we do day by day. So that's pretty much it is that, you know, I don't recall really many times in meetings, particularly when I was in administration, uh, saying, well, historically we've done this because that doesn't apply. But I think it sharpens your arguments and broadens your arguments at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, um, I had planned on asking you a question just about why you think it's important for administrators or students in higher ed or researchers to understand the history of higher education. Mm -hmm. But um, and and I'm you know you kind of alluded to a bit of that uh, within the practical realm, and and I what what I was going to say there is um, just a little anecdote of. I was at a, at a meeting the other day of faculty and they were talking about great inflation 
And I brought up the fact that throughout history, this has been something that um, faculty have worried about, you know, since the very founding of, of uh, institutions. And they said, no, it's not. And I said, no, 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 it is. I can actually show you. And, um, and so I, I do think that sometimes it's, it's, it really is good for people to understand that these are not necessarily new problems and that we they just become new. I mean, have, is that something that you're kind of alluding to, to seeing that yourself in your administrative career? Yes. Yeah, I did. Uh, um, like, for example, he's an old time historian, but I still value much of his work, Lawrence Vesey. And he yeah. says, uh, uh, you know, in the emergence of the, 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 the American University that, you know, there's this awful chasm between students and professors. And, and to the end, when I was working with undergraduates in, in my career, I saw bits and pieces of that chasm. And if I got kind of informal and went outside the classroom, you know, I'd hear it uh, without a doubt. And I promised to tell at least one joke. So here's, here's my joke on that one. And I can't remember if it was in Vizi or maybe it was Rudolph, but uh, supposedly in the late 1800s, uh, a student asked a professor at Princeton, can you tell me, sir, the difference between a mailbox and a rhinoceros? And the professor said, no. And the student said, then I shall never ask you to mail a letter for me. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it, it's been, you know, it's centuries old, this gap between professors and, and students. And as much as I enjoyed working with students, I knew full well that they had projects they wanted to do, things they wanted to do that were not in the realm of the classroom. And you know, it doesn't make the, the problem, I think it makes the problem resistant to solution, but it's not unsolvable. It, it, it is actually something that we have to think about carefully because we can't just say, oh, well, we'll just change these requirements and everything will change. No, no, it doesn't. So uh, uh, I think there's, you know, a, a sharpening of understanding through the study of history of higher education. Mm. And I do think it's valuable for somebody who knows history. You know, I've seen often enough somebody just hands over a reader or something to even doctoral grad students and says, here, you teach the master's course in history of higher ed. We slide into what I call in my book, the name, date, uh, place crap. <laughs> you, you think the 1862 Moral Land Grant Act explains the land-grant universities. Well, first of all, as I argue, it's the 1862 and 1890 acts, and you can't separate them. Racism is embedded in them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it doesn't have the effect that everybody likes to look at now and look at a land-grant, major land-grant like Penn State uh, and say, oh, you know, a huge school, lots of success. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in the 1800s, a lot didn't survive. They'd be closed for a couple of years because they didn't have any students. So, yeah. Um, so one of the frustrations that I have is when I read work in um, higher education or education or really any field, uh, sociology would also you know, be part of this. And there is no sense of the history of the topic that the person is studying. And when you when you read the article, it's 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 as if it the the topic. And, and these are researchers, right? These are these are scholars, faculty. 
for not engaging history. And here's another thing is that I'm, I'm interested in your take on this, mm-hmm. is that oftentimes people are told, oh, don't look at any articles that are more than 10 years old, right? Which could eliminate, which I always thought was ridiculous, but could eliminate articles that are really, really seminal. Yes. And so I'm just wondering what, what, what kind of knowledge do you think that scholars should have when doing work? And also... What do you think? What do you think about like contemporary work and the lack of engagement with history? Well, I, you know, I think there's a certain excitement in running to a problem and solving it. It's as if today we have the answers. Finally, we have the answers. Or uh, I've written the article that gives us the answers. And and I always would have like a, a little attack when a student would say, "Well, my dissertation chair says don't go back any more than ten years in your in your literature search." Because there are, you know, issues. We started looking seriously at the transition and the impediments to transition from two-year colleges to four-year institutions as early as 1960 and Burton Clark's, you know, the the cooling out function of higher education, which is just a wonderful work. And I'd have students read that when I was teaching in, you know, in the 1990s and the 2000s and Community college uh, students at community colleges would say, "We're still doing this." You know, we think we're doing well by telling some student your test scores indicate. You know, I've talked with you; that indicates your success in these courses, your struggles in these courses. All tell me you shouldn't go to a four-year college. Well, we cooled them out, and and about maybe ten years ago, people started coming up with this expression, "heating up," which I think is a good one, mm-hmm. but it only about if you know we've cooled them out, you know, these students. Mm. So uh, uh, I, I really agree. Uh, teaching in a college of education, of course, most of the people were K through 12, and I'd hear somebody say that, and I'd say, well, so um, we really should not be reading John Dewey. Well, that usually silenced the conversation, and they ignored me because I get ignored all the time, and you know, they want to do what they wanted. But it doesn't make any sense to me. Sometimes that trail... It's interesting, sometimes like any research trail, any literature trail, it ends up not particularly productive. Mm -hmm. But if you know what people have looked at, uh, that the arguments about effectiveness in higher education, I mean, seriously, are we going to really say, let's, okay, I don't know, are we in a recession? We're not in a recession. Is it a long term? Is it short term? All of this, I don't know. But what I do know is you can't seriously tell me that we didn't attempt as institutions of higher education and its participants during the Great Depression to be immediately responsive, to adjust to unforeseen circumstances, right? I mean, it's there. Uh, There's plenty of primary source stuff written about in the 1930s, about the 1930s. If you read, there's an AAUP report by a, a committee Q uh, on uh, the faculty lives in the Great Depression, published, I think, in 1938. Well, guess what? Uh, a lot of institutions had to cut faculty members. And guess what? It was part-time, then full-time clinical, then pre-tenure, then tenure. So what are we doing now? Yeah, right, right. right. Don't, don't you know that those discussions are going on in cabinets, presidential cabinets across the nation? Mm-hmm. How long can we survive this? Whom can we retain? You know, what's our order of cutting people? Right, that's exactly, yeah. It's, it's, 
So uh, um, is, is it a solution? No. Uh, but knowing how we cranked up for World War II, not only in terms of you know, adjusting you know, faculty times so that they could contribute to fighting the war and things like that, but, but also the paranoia, right? That hired yeah. Oh, yeah. during World War II in the McCarthy period. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw the exact same thing after 9-11. Right, right. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, I, in my history class, I was using, you know, I, when I would talk about uh, McCarthyism, I would use examples from post 9-11, and they were pretty much, you know, the same thing. <laughs> so. yeah. Yeah. We, we, we get really afraid of the stranger in, in times of war, which I understand. I just don't think we need to act it out. I think we ought to look at it and say, why are we afraid of the stranger? Because that so broadly, what would happen, of course, is then we would attach, you know, like during McCarthyism, well, if you're a communist and you're integrationist, then there we go. You're all part of the problem. You are the problem. You're seeking to overthrow the United States. Yeah. As opposed to saying, no, we're seeking to include people in the democracy who have been excluded. So, so I, I you know, I, I, I just think that reminding ourselves that, that we are historically rich institutions is very important uh, and, and i think i could probably look at some industries and say you know i don't know so much about their histories and how important they actually are to them but even a lot of the times when i look at industry i think you know were you taking a careful look at why people unionized during the 1930s if we're giving billions to corporations and not so much to the workers what are we saying right yeah right there's the yeah there's I just, I just think there's a lot that researchers can can learn from having a solid foundation. So, so and here's here's the thing: to get a solid foundation, uh, there's the connection. Uh, so you recently released a new book, which is a People's History of American Higher Education, and it's focused, um, you know, on really challenging the way we think. Uh, historically about colleges and universities, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and I guess one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, how did you come to develop what really is sort of a counter narrative to many of the previous histories of higher education that have been, have been you know, used that probably both of us have used. Right. So how, how, how did this all happen? Well, I mean, again, some of it is just this persistent undercurrent of concern about uh, who's in higher education or even more broadly, who has what opportunities in this nation. But it got to be increasingly when I was in graduate school, uh, the issue of how these institutions form in exclusive ways and how they kind of remanufacture things, ideas such as diversity to account for themselves uh, in say the movement toward greater diversity, but not yet really acknowledging how they employ and continue the role of exclusion. Um, and it became more and more important to me Think for two reasons. One, my, my administrative background was really exclusively at small liberal arts colleges in the Midwest. And initially it was in admissions. And trust me, there's really nothing like working for a small private liberal arts college in Wisconsin 
and going into a high school and realizing that 20% of the students are going to go to the University of Wisconsin immediately, right? And a lot of good students. So you're kind of like, well, why, why is this a preferred institution? Mm -hmm. Okay, it's Mad City. That's the nickname for Madison, Wisconsin. And you know, it is a great university. Uh, but we offer classes with 15 students. You know, you're not going to be in numbers sitting all the way in the back of the class. So some of it was you know, just what does education mean and, and how do you really grow in education? And then I, in admissions, I was actively trying to recruit for a predominantly white small liberal arts college in areas where, that had uh, schools with large proportions of students of color. Uh, at the time that was more often African-American, uh, uh, just given our recruiting area, but talking with those students and, and hearing what they would have to say about, not even directly, but you could you know, listen carefully and you could hear them sort of talking about, do I belong? Or should I be here? And then when I got to teaching uh, in, in 1992 uh, and hearing students uh, in Atlanta and uh, talking to African-American students increasingly, you, know, you were there for a while, you know, I mean, I, yeah. I recruited African-American students, yeah. This is a traditionally white institution here, but you know we've got ways of working with you, and uh, uh, we're committed. And um, it really drove home. Teaching really drove home this problem that yeah, it all sounds well and good if you went to an elite institution. Uh, I still am tagged for the prep school I went to. People, oh, you went there? Well, yeah, you know it was 50 years ago. <laughs> I may have done some other things in the interim, uh, uh, but uh, it, it just, you know, and then, okay, so what are you doing on your, on your campus? What, what are you studying on your campus? What, what are the issues on your campus? And if you looked at the, you know, remarkable assortment of black colleges in, in Atlanta and then throughout the, the Southeast, I watched literally the initial struggles of, of students of uh, Latinx uh, background beginning their entrance into higher education. And I said to my students, you give it 10 years and they'll be professionals. They'll have their medical degrees, they'll have the law degrees, they'll be running for political office. And I proved right, which is like the second time in my entire life where I actually predicted something accurately. Uh, but it, it, you know, it's not as if these communities don't want education. You can't say, oh, you know, they don't care, you know, look at, look at their schools, you know, they don't want to go to college. So how, how did this happen? Who, who did this? And I see the elite institutions as being part and parcel of the problem. Uh, they, they provide remarkable opportunities, but they provide opportunities to the few. And then my question is, what happens to the many? And, and I was educated at a couple of elite institutions, but I was working at, at Regular colleges is the only way. I mean, it's not that undifferent. Well, we've talked about this. It's not dissimilar from your, your undergraduate experience. Yeah. And um, I, then when I started talking to like our students who are working at, at the black colleges in the Atlanta area and, you know, and the students who are working at community colleges and what they were struggling with and the depth yeah. of their belief yeah. in their students. No, absolutely. I said, this counts. This is a fun aspect of education, believe in your students. So it, it, it was that. Now, I, I, 
be honest, I, I feel a little awkward about it when I'm mm-hmm. like encountering my alum magazine from my prep school because I'm like, well, yeah. I'm reading this thinking I'm, I'm just not part of this. A, a, a product of the qual- high quality education I got, but uh, I, I don't make these connections. I, I don't care what's going on in some major Wall Street firm or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do in one sense because, of course, they're having an impact, but I'm like, you know, tell me what's going on at uh, you know, a black-owned insurance company. Hey, you know, I'd like to know. What about these small businesses that are sort of crux of so many economic lives of so many uh, communities that are shunned, uh, you know, kept away from the, the big-time places? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's uh, it developed over time and really probably became solid about... 10, 15 years ago, I think. And I began to redesign my syllabus and say, this is a syllabus to challenge the standing way. And, and it was pretty pretty much bereft and required readings of standard narratives. And I was fortunate at the same time that people such as you or Linda Eisenman and Janet Nidefer were coming along and saying, whoa, you know, what about African-Americans? What about white women? What about LGBTQ? I mean, they, uh, what histories do they have? And what I argued with my students pretty much maybe every semester was, if you really want to understand, for example, the drive to professional achievement, why don't you look at an, a community that's primarily excluded? Mm-hmm. What do they do to get to medical school or law school or social work or, or, or nursing? And how, how did this all come about and why are they doing it? And, and you know, how important is, why is it important to them? Right, right. And I think I've learned a lot about the drive to professionalization, which is, of course, one of the core things we do in higher education by looking at communities that do not have all the opportunities. I'll give you a great example. Uh, I came across this several years ago. I was doing a paper. Uh, I was at a history of ed conference in England. It was very, very interesting because I was, I was doing a piece on uh, race in medical schools in the 1930s. And the first question I got after my presentation was class. And so just a great reminder, the Europeans, maybe not so much now with all their changes in demographics, but yeah, it was about class. But mm-hmm. what I did not know was that, uh, I was not surprised by it, but the 1930s were a rise in what I would call black college use of black literature, black sociology, black history, now, people like Carter G. Woodson. Uh, and um, so guess what's not part of uh, white medical school admission? Black literature, black sociology, black history. So you're getting an education that is liberal arts, which is what it's supposed to be for these kinds of institutions, but it doesn't lead to that professional education that so many liberal arts students aspire to. And as you know, there, we've had a paucity of black medical colleges for, well, a century now. Yeah. In a, you know, a century from... A, Flexner's report on medical education in the United States and Canada. So, because I had the opportunity, of course, to um, look pretty closely at your book and see it before it was actually published, um, there are just really, really interesting, um, there are just interesting things, I think, that challenge the conventional wisdom um, and, like I said earlier, provide this counter-narrative throughout. And one thing I wanted to do is just read a passage from your book that 
I think is uh, profound and explains what you describe as a social history. And so you say, quote, history can teach us if for no other reason than to know the events we can celebrate and the events that ought to haunt us, but can too easily remain under the guise of a social construction that does not remind us that people and peoples participate in the life of the nation. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what social history the book explores and kind of the impact of that? And then after you do that, I'm really curious about your perspective on monuments on college campuses and just monuments like Southern monuments in, in general. Because when I read that, it reminded me of the, you know, the whole argument around monuments. And as a historian, I'm sure you have a perspective there. Yeah, and, and, and this is, I mean, that sentence really is part of my process of coming to understand history as I think we ought to understand it, uh, which is that, uh, and, and the social historians are way ahead of me on this. So, you know, all credit to, to the huge number of social historians. It really explodes in the late 1960s and early 1970s when white male history departments, which pretty much describes all of them nationally, except at black colleges and, and not so much at white women's colleges, realized that white women and people of color were fully capable of doing good historical study and weren't going to, in the case of women, white or uh, of color, uh, go off and get married after earning the doctorate, uh, or really were only interested in like black problems. Uh, I know you know Walter Kimbrough and he did a little interview yeah. for me on an award I won and said, you know, for Philo, it's not a black problem, it's a problem. And and this is it to me. That's, mm -hmm. you know, back to what I said about understanding professionalization, but it's, um, I value and treasure the ideal of democracy in this country. And yet I'm also deeply concerned that we, we just still struggle to achieve it on a, on a day by day basis. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, you know, it's not the social history of old colleges uh, who have been around since the 1600s, 1700s um, and how they've served their populations. Uh, but the story of the myriad of people in this nation and uh, all that they've done to really make the nation a better place. Uh, I get into fights about this sometimes with other historians and philosophers because are we really better? Well, in some ways, I think we are. In other ways, we haven't made many gains, but uh, uh, however much you know, uh, birth mortality rates have improved, they're still bad. Right, for some groups, uh, uh, and for you know, rural versus urban, or and so I want to know, and I want to share with people that uh, we do build these things. Right? I had this little uh, uh, assignment I did in a foundations course. I taught for master's students who were elementary school teachers and going to get their master's degree. And it just came out of the blue, and it was really many thanks to uh, Michael Beasy, whom you know, yeah. his interest in photography. And I had one of these morning epiphanies that I have, and uh, which isn't, oh, I think I'll have cream in my coffee this morning. It was a little bit more substantial. And I thought, I'm going to have these students realize that when they're in elementary schools, the social construction, the history of women in elementary schools 
is deep and unrecognized. And so I said, I want you to go and take photos of men's room, restrooms and women's restrooms, preferably at a upscale place, although you can do it at, you know, like a gas station or whatever. Mm. Now don't, you know, intrude on privacy and anything. Don't run mm. in with the camera and go, I'm taking photos, but then come back and, 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 and let's talk about it. And it's amazing how that developed. And I, you know, I thank all the students for helping, uh, helping me to develop it. But what it came to fruition is, so we don't see gender in a, in a restroom. I think we do more now because of transgender issues, but mm. what, even looking and so the women would come in because of course it was almost always all or almost all women in the classroom because they're elementary school teachers and they'd say well this was interesting the men's room was disgusting and the women's room was clean and i said that to me says something about who's responsible for cleaning bathrooms <laughs> i think they're responsible for cleaning bathrooms which they're not then they don't care whether it's messy or clean when they walk out mm. Maybe women are more likely to keep the bathroom clean because they know who's going to clean. And then they talk about the colors of the restrooms, right? That, that women's restrooms were so often, and it's changed. I mean, they've gotten to more of a, a uniform across uh, genders, but it would be pastels. You know, there'd be a plant in the, you know, I mean, and then men would have dark colors, browns and blacks and whites, and uh, no plants. And almost always when there was a, a, a man in the classroom, he would go lose it. I knew about this, but women would say, and then of course, you know, we often have a couch in the restroom. And he'd go, what? What do you mean we have a couch in the restroom? Yeah. And then it led me to realize that there's a, a, you know, even though men are actually physically open, i.e., you know, we don't have separate stalls, they're socially closed. You don't go in, trust me, Mary Beth, I do not go into a restroom and casually say something to another man. I've tried it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fun. I'd recommend it to men to do that. Mm -hmm. Because when you say something like, oh, well, uh, uh, there's plenty of uh, uh, paper towels. Bam, he's out of there like a shot, right? Oh my God, I might touch him. Maybe he's a homosexual. Mm. Uh, and, and women, of course, socialize in restaurants. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I'd say to the women, you know, this didn't happen by genetics. This didn't come down from on high. We constructed bathrooms. We construct elementary schools. And we do so with a gendered lens. And they'd go, you're right. And then go back to a primarily all women elementary school. But it is, it is our, our histories are not brought down from on high that we construct them and we don't think about it. Yeah. And so the impact of sharing this history is for us to think about this and think seriously about, so what does it mean? You know, I'm not, you know, the elite institutions, you know, I'd talk with say a, a student of color Yeah. when I was a student and, and if I was attentive and listened, I'd hear a different student story. And it wasn't just, you know, the experiences in the classroom, it's also, what family thought of this education, uh, what the community thought. Uh, there's a wonderful book from, I think, 1976 by Lois Weiss, Between Two Worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's about black community college students in an upstate New York community college, a primarily white community college coming from a black community. 
Yeah, yeah. And so here's an open access institution, right? They welcome everybody, but they were in conflict with their home communities. Mm-hmm. So I, for me, it's it's you know just keeping in mind that, that we build this and we've done it for centuries. We, I guess I'd say we we do corrections, but then we also kind of bounce along doing the same old thing and not thinking about it and being thoughtful, I think is a responsibility of college and university administrators and faculty members. So what do you think about Southern monuments? Really curious. I've been wanting to ask you that. Yeah. I, I, first of all, I think it's a very difficult problem mm-hmm. uh, that if I approach it from a historical standpoint. And part of the problem for me is that I refuse to deny our racist past. Mm-hmm. or a racist present. Uh, I, I don't know what we accomplished by doing that. On the other hand, uh, monumentalizing, maybe that's a neologism, uh, but creating monuments to sanctify somebody with a fundamentally deeply racist perspective on humanity, to me, uh, uh, an error of history, error of the present. My Reaction is maybe twofold, uh, one of which is these monuments, uh, you know, whether it's of Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis. I, I remember when we were at Georgia State, we had a couple of days off in Christmas break that weren't uh, actually cost against our uh, salaries because it was a state holiday, the Jefferson Davis birthday. So that kind of monument really really disturbs me and disrupts me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think we need those. There are buildings on campuses, and that's where I, I find the problem to be more problematic because nobody knows on the University of Alabama what, uh, say, Knott Hall is. Who's not? Well, it turns out that Knott was a deeply racist, uh, wealthy person uh, in the post-Civil War era, gave a lot of money to University of Alabama, helped it develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't deny that part of what he did. But, you know, just having a plaque on the wall is not enough for me. I, I you know, I say, let the let education, let history educate us. And, and let that plaque say, reconstruct the plaque. And say, generous funding, problematized, that's probably not a word you want on, on a plaque, but, you know, the PR people who put it up correctly. And, um, so problematized by the fact that he had a, a, a medical college that he owned back in the days when people owned medical colleges in Birmingham, and he said he would shut it down if a black person entered, right? So, so we need to know that we enjoy Knott Hall, uh, and, and it's a solid brick building, and you know, it's been around for over a century and, and so on, uh, but it doesn't go without strings attached is probably a nice way of putting it. And you know, then we can have counter monuments, like uh, the first person to enter classes at Alabama uh, was recently uh, uh, honored with a plaque in, in her name. She was an education student, so it was, it was there, Authorine Lucy, and, uh, and it was 1956, and uh, she lasted about all of two days before the, the unbelievable mobs. Uh, drove her off campus, literally. Right, yeah. So we can do that and memorialize people who have created positive change for us and, and uh, 
I don't see that people who have had deeply racist histories, biographies, we need to acknowledge both sides of it. And I wouldn't be unconvinced if somebody said, no, we're just taking down the plaque. We're just going to say that this is now, I don't know, Hall A or something to talk about it. But it is, um, I think it's a very difficult problem for if you want to think historically, because ignoring our racist past allows us to continue racism. But, you know, these huge statues, there's always, I've kind of looked at them saying, what are we doing with, you know, a monument to Stonewall Jackson or Nathaniel Bedford Forrest? Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. I was named after somebody like Nathaniel Bedford Forrest. Forrest, don't even get me going there. No is my answer. <laughs> um, the last question I have is, so you're retired now, and I'm just curious, are you planning on doing any new research or are you just sort of taking it easy there in Maine? Well, uh, yes and yes. I, I am taking it easy, although I did have to call the town office this morning because a big, huge truck came through on our mud road and it's posted no big, huge trucks. Uh, so I have my little minor battles that I fight. But uh, I, I'm working on... An, something I began years ago, discontinued because somebody convinced me to write a history of higher education. Sorry. Uh, and um, <laughs> uh, it's a, it started as a history of the uh, 1947 President's Commission on Higher Education, the Truman Commission, the first ever federal commission uh, on higher education, um, probably had a, a you know, incredibly important impact on the development of federal higher education policy. Uh, I suspended that. Uh, I got kind of sidetracked because I was just sitting there thinking, I, I don't know where to take this. And then it just turned out I, I had to go in another direction. So it's called the Truman Commission. It's sometimes called the Zook Commission. He was chair of the commission. And it does lead to the 1965 Higher Education Act. Um, and so what I've begun to do is create a, a political history, which is a kind of a new field for me, but also with a careful eye to these issues of what does it mean to define people who should go to higher education? The Truman Commission established it in ways really very different from other uh, understandings at the time. And I've got some other commission reports I've just looked at. And I think part of what I'm going to be doing is talking about how did we define diversity? and who ought to be in the diverse community of higher education in the future? Uh, and how do we get them there? And a major response to that is federal financial aid, which really is a result of the 1965 Higher Education Act. So I've got various papers and articles I've, I've done on it in the past. I'm pulling those together. I was thinking about passing it all on to a student. And then I realized I have about four feet of archival notes <laughs> and so on. I thought, geez, I probably should do something with all this work. So what I want to finish on is the, an understanding of the federal role in higher education and how it in part reflects uh, the exclusion and inclusion of higher education and in part disrupts it until the 1980s when we substitute grants for loans and put a very different kind of financing burden on students who could not afford higher education without assistance. And I'm I'm taking it very slowly. I'm not in a rush. I'm, I'm making sure people know I'm doing it so they don't say, well, you know, should somebody else do a Truman Commission book? And I've talked to 
people in policy and higher education, and they seem very interested in it. So that's, that's what I'm going to do. And when that's done, I'm done. <laughs> then you're just, you're just going to hang out in Maine and... Yeah, I'll go to conferences once in a while. My major travel is actually, I'll end on a personal note, but my girlfriend and I have a deal. We're going to the oldest bar in every state. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and it really is cool. And a lot of times we go and the bartender, will, you know, they know this, you know, there are other people who do what they've met. Food, unbelievably, tends to be excellent. It's not just bar food. Hmm. Uh, like the one in Ohio, uh, uh, is uh, it's the old tavern, I think it's called, and it it's got a gay pride flag out 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 front. It's like, well, this is our first oldest bar that had a gay pride flag. This is pretty cool. Oh wow, that's good. I'm glad glad you're doing some some things like that, and I'm glad you're happy. Yeah, I, I am. And good, good. That's good. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we really appreciate it, and hopefully. People learned a lot about you and a little bit about history. So thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you, Mary Beth. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. My pleasure.